you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. I think the forever part needs to pick it up. So Jesus Christ is the same. Nice. Not bad. As we've been doing this, I asked myself this week, why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Or that God is who he is from age to age, from eon to eon, from Old Testament to New Testament to today? Why does that even matter? I'll tell you why it matters. First of all, it matters that God is constant. Therefore, God is reliable. God does not change like the shifting shadows as the sun goes through the sky and as the circumstances change in life that things can suddenly be different to God. No, he is constant and is reliable. His truth is timeless. Therefore, it's always relevant and it's always powerful. You read this book and it was written over the course of thousand years and still every word is timeless and relevant and powerful to us today. There are many things you can read in life, many interesting things, fiction, science fiction, facts, documentaries, all kinds of things, but nothing is as powerful and transformative as these ancient words. God's word is timeless. His love is unfailing. Therefore, his love is not fickle, and it's not spiteful. God's love is unfailing. It is constant. And though your affections for him and your affections for one another may come and go, may may peak and may valley, God's love is unfailing. He's the same, age to age. How about this? His holiness is unchanging. When we say that God is holy, he's not just perfect in all that he does. He's perfect and pure in all that he is. That God is holy is to say that there is no imperfection or impurity in him. He is righteous in all he does, and he is holy in who he is. Age to age, the same. He has not, over the course of human history, become infected by toxic attitudes or perceptions, but he is holy. It also means that his purposes are forever. God does not start out on a purpose and then somehow change his agenda on you. Have you ever had anyone do that, change their agenda on you? Yeah, it happens to me. If you're married today, it's happened to you. Because your wife has said, hey, we're going to go out. Let's go out for dinner. And you're like, great, I'm hungry. Let's go out for dinner. But what you don't know is that there's four stops at different shops that you have to hit on the way. And when you're finished, you got to run a little errand for somebody else. I'm like, wait a second. That is not the published agenda. We're going to eat. God's purposes, they're unchanging. They're constant. His agenda has not changed on you. It is for his glory. It is for your good. 
It is for the redemption of mankind. And when we say that God is the same age to age, that means his covenant is binding. His covenant is binding, which means his commitment to you will not change. He doesn't give up on people. That's what it means. He never has and he never will. So when we say that God is age to age the same, his purposes, his person, his procedures, they are to you a gift of love because you know that he is constant and reliable. And as much as your life and your attitudes and your everything changes, God is always the same. From one generation to the next generation to every generation to follow, he is as faithful as that word could ever mean. Let's pray. And let's ask that God, in his immutability, he doesn't mutate, his immutable, that he would mutate us today, that he would change and transform us today and have his way. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, you never change. You are faithful and you are true. But Lord, we fluctuate often. Our hearts are so fickle. Our understanding of purpose for our lives, Lord, becomes in and out of focus. God, even our own love for you and love for others, God, it is so unreliable. So today we ask that, Lord, you would ground us in your word. Let us be planted there and let the roots of our life go deep into your powerful, unchanging, imperishable word. God, we pray that you would bind us to yourself. That, Lord, that we would become faithful. That we would become constant and unchanging in our love, in our service, in our character. Lord, we pray that our, in our frailty, Lord, that life for us, that we might find our strength in you. Lord, help us to be brave and strong and love that which is true. And as we go through your word, God, let your word go through us. Produce a harvest of righteousness and joy so that we might live in such a way as to honor you and have an amazing time with each other. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Today I'm going um, to pull from a scripture that you may have heard before. It is, uh, it is an Old Testament scripture, but it's used in the New Testament. And I want us to see just kind of the, the rhetorical effect that God who speaks things in, in King Solomon's time, which is probably about nine... Uh, 5920 B.C., is quoted in the New Testament in the first century, a thousand years later, and is still relevant and true today, 2,000 years after that was written, published. And so God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the, the scripture verse I want us to see is Proverbs, it's chapter 3, I believe it'll be up on the screen behind me, is verse 34 and 35. So here we go, Proverbs 3, 34, it says this. For he, speaking of God, he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble 
and the oppressed. The wise inherit honor, and fools only get shame. I want to focus on verse 34, but Proverbs is often written in couplets or parallel lines that kind of say the same thing only in another way to help get the point across. So it says that, that God mocks the mockers, but shows favor to the humble. You know, it's, it's interesting because Proverbs, it, it's such a great book if you love, like, life is black and white. You know, right? God does good to the right, people that do right, and God does bad to the people that do bad. And it just, it just draws those lines so clearly. And it's meant to. It's, it's, it's wisdom to us so that we can see things clearly for a moment. And here, it quite simply says that if you're an arrogant mocker, God is far more powerful and big than you, and ultimately you will be put to shame and you will be mocked by him. But if you are humble or even in an oppressed situation, it says God gives favor to that person. And favor is just not like I'll do you a favor. I'll just I'll help you out on the side or yeah, I'll, I'll help you move. I got a pickup. I'll just do you a favor. No, the favor of God is something far more valuable than that. The favor of God means that, that he will lift you from your position and with his own strength lift you to a higher place. That you would find Favor in the eyes of a king, for instance, would mean that the king would use his power to lift you from your ordinary peasant life and he would lift you into the king's courts. People like Daniel found favor in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. Joseph found favor in the eyes of the the jailer and then ultimately the pharaoh. And he was elevated. And what the proverb is saying, that if you have an arrogant, mocking, kind of punk life, then God's like, I am going to stand opposed to that. That the power of God will like, mirror back that mocking and press you down. That the mocker will be mocked. The one who lifts his arrogant head will have their arrogant head pushed down into the dust. But those who are humble will find the favor of God lifting them from their humble, oppressed position, and God will lift you high. It's a very powerful, powerful principle. And it's, it's, it's throughout the scriptures. And I think it makes us ask the question of our own hearts, what am I? What are you? Are you a mocker? You think you know best? You got it figured out and you kind of just stand in judgment of the people around you and the world around you? Or do you have humility? You know, humility is this, it's this grace of the soul not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. It really is a grace. It's a revelation. Because we are designed, we are programmed, we are built to promote and accelerate our own agenda. But those who have a revelation and understanding of legit humility, not false humility, nothing more disgusting than false humility. I read a comic strip this week. In my research, I research our sermons in the comics. 
And I had this guy, and he was like, it is with the greatest and most sincere heart and humility, and then the next frame, that I say to you, my giant and immense failures and faults in life, and the last frame, is to underestimate my own opinion. There's plenty of false humility out there. It's not very becoming. The Hebrew word for humility, there's, there's many different words used, several different words, but it's this idea of bowing down. There's a, a bowing of the, the, the whole, your stature, your attitude, your positioning is to intentionally lower yourself. In many cultures, a greeting is with a bow. It's a show of respect. I'm not arrogantly mocking you, but I am humbly receiving you. Oftentimes, in Hebrew worship, in early Christian worship, in modern Christian worship, the idea of bowing before the Lord is a physical act which mirrors an internal, spiritual, emotional, intellectual posture of lowering yourself and bowing before the Lord. Sometimes when we're singing a song or if I'm praying, I'm fine, I'm standing up, and I find that my heart is in the right place, I'm humble before the Lord. But there are times when I, I, I realize that my posture before the Lord, not physical, but spiritual posture before the Lord, is not where it needs to be. I'm concerned about this, or there's accusation in my heart or my mind about why is this going that way, or why is that, or sometimes if you're hurt or disappointed, there's a lot of things that go on inside of us, right, that affect and infect our worship. And that's why sometimes I, I literally have to say, okay, at the very least with my body, I'm going to humble myself. It's an intentional decision, and I just hope that my heart and my spirit and my mind follow. I'm not saying you can't get on your knees and still be a mocker, an arrogant punk, but it does at least help me if I physically posture in a way that draws my heart and draws my attitude to its rightful place before the Lord. It's actually not far off the position where you ask a woman to marry you. I hope if you got down on one knee and asked your wife to marry you, it was not the last time you humbled yourself before your wife. But humility means to bow down. You know, it's thought by some to be a sign of weakness, right? To humble yourself or lower yourself before another person or even before God. Certainly in some cultures, it's, it's very... Um, it's very much perceived as a weakness. But certainly in the Bible, in the Old Testament times, in the New Testament times, in our Christian life, in our Christian world, it is seen as a great virtue. And according to Proverbs 3, humility it is a, is a pathway. It, it's a road map to God blessing you with his favor, God lifting you from the bottom and bringing you to the top. And so I want us to see humility as a profound and significant and urgent goal for our lives. 
It is not a byproduct. You know, sometimes we go through some really hard times and God humbles us through them, you know? It's like, yeah, I, got, I didn't get that promotion or, you know, I asked, I liked that person and they didn't like me back. Or I wanted to be a part of that friend group and they don't seem to like me. And we have these humbling situations in our life. What if we had a whole service just dedicated to humbling situations you've experienced? We could probably fill up an hour and a half. But those situations, they remind us and force us to be humbled, sometimes humiliated. God's desire, the biblical desire for us to humble ourselves is not to humiliate you, but for you to help find the pathway to God's favor and God's grace and God's blessing. And so if you've been through one of those circumstances, receive it as a gift. Don't stay there. Don't stay humiliated, but acknowledge and understand and say, Lord, I receive this call to humility. I remember a story. Well, it's, it happened to me. That's why I remember it. When I got invited to stand up in a good friend's wedding, and then he counted the groomsmen and the bridesmaid, and they didn't match up, and he came back to me and asked me not to be in his wedding. I'm like, dang. Man. And it was a very real test of my friendship with him because he is a good friend. He was and is and hopefully will ever remain a good friend. But it was humbling for me. And it's not like he had two groomsmen. He had like eight of them. I'm like, I really am not in the top eight? And it was a humbling situation. You know what? I went away and I said, Lord, what gives? What's up with that? There's all the fun stuff I'm not going to get to do with these guys, and I won't be in the photos. And anyways, just, man, dang, it hurts. And I said, you know what, Lord, it's okay. I'm reminded. You can trust me with the humble jobs. You can trust me with the jobs that maybe people don't want. But I think that's a precious task. I want to be humble. I want to receive that with gladness, because I know, Lord, as you teach and shape my heart to be humble, Lord, that it is a pathway to favor and to grace, and I believe greatness. And so, let's take a peek at the way that verse is used in two different New Testament verses. The first New Testament verse, maybe you'll be reminded of it, is James chapter 4. Now, you're going to also notice that the translation is a little bit different. Because if I would have read Proverbs 34 and I said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? You'd be all like, yeah, I recognize that verse. Well, in, um, go ahead, James chapter 4, they quote that verse in 34. But just it's different because the New Testament writers are quoting not the Hebrew Old Testament but the Greek translated Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so the Greeks translation, it reads a little bit different, but you'll recognize it as I go. Let's read James 4, 1 through 6. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. 
You do not have because you do not ask. But when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Just a little parenthesis. Spending what you get, asking God, spending what you get for your own pleasures, God views as a wrong motive. Spending what you get, this is a, this is a little parenthesis bonus, spending what you get and what you ask for to bless others and also be blessed in the process is the right motive. But that's not today's sermon. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or separation against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of this world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you not think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he caused to dwell in us? But, verse 6 says, he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Proverbs 3.34. James is addressing two problems. And you got to love James because he's like, say it as it is, punch in the mouth. Get yourself right. There's two problems that James is addressing. The first one is this. You're coveting everyone else's stuff. You are unsatisfied in your own heart with your life, and therefore you're comparing yourself and, and coveting what other people have. You have a wrong relationship with people because of sin in your heart. It's very simple. He says... You have the sin of covetousness. You have wrong motives. And it's so powerful, and I won't go too far on this, but when we're not happy in our own heart with God and what he's given us in life, we look at other people and we're like, I want that. How come I don't have this? And we begin to find ourselves very unsatisfied, and we begin coveting or being jealous of other people in life. And that creates hostility on the horizontal level. We just have bad relationships with people because the whole thing is based on this comparison of what they have and what you don't have. It's, it, was a, it was a very real, obvious problem back in James's day, and it's a very real and obvious problem in our day. That our relationships with one another is quarreling, fighting, and he uses the word kill. I don't know if that's hyperbole or if people are actually killing each other. But the, 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 the act of not being content in yourself and comparing yourself to others is a violent. It does violence to community and relationships. And so it's a big problem. And the second problem that James addresses in this paragraph, you'll see it in verse 4, is a sin of adultery towards God. Now it's interesting, when, when the Bible talks about adultery with God, don't lose the graphic nature of that metaphor. So you're a married person, you have a wife or a spouse, you, and that's a covenant, that's a, that's a promise, that's a lifelong decision to love and to honor and to cherish till death do us part, for richer or poorer, better or worse, this is my number one. And he's saying you're an adulterous people, which means instead of that being your faithful expression of life, your number one, your relationship with God, you're sleeping around with other people. 
You're going out and you're having one-night stands or flings here or adulterous relationships with other people, prostitutes or who knows who, that you are cheating on God in the most graphic and intimate way. You're adulterous people, he says. Your friendship with the world, you want so bad for the world to accept you and elevate you. You want so bad to be like lovers with all the things that the world has to offer. Instead of wanting so bad for God to love you and to elevate you and to receive from his hand all the things he has to offer. And he says, you're an adulterous people. Idolatry, he calls it. You're not worshiping the little statues, but you are worshiping and giving your love and your affections, your time and your money, and all of your hopes in life are based on these worldly things. Don't you know that that kind of friendship with the world makes you an enemy to your number one? Brutal. Don't get me wrong. I like nice things and cool things in the world, and I enjoy experiences. It's not that. God has given us all things greatly to enjoy. Man, you had a carpe diem, man. Grab the moment. Live your life. It'll be filled with joy and people and things and experiences and all the good things God wants for you. But that is very, very different than sleeping around with all these other things and giving your heart's desire to the things of the world instead of making God your everything and your only number one. What is number one for you? And idolatry can be shiny, happy little people in your house or this false image of a good relationships, this or that, or maybe you, you, know, you render yourself an academic and you like to use big words. There's all kinds of ways you can just sleep around with the world, try to make a big impression this way or that way. And God says, I won't have it. Do you, do you not know that God jealously burns for you? He is a lover extraordinaire, and he will not share you with these other things. He has passion about you. He gives it all to you. He has no plan B. He says, you are my people, and I will be your God. And so you sleep around with every new thing and idea, materialism and, and, and perception and making people think you're this or that. Well, God's like, where am I in this equation? What about what I think of you? What about what I have for your life? When James says, listen, it's not going to fly with God. In the same way that you coveting and comparing is not going to fly with your people. These are big problems. In three paragraphs, James nails the biggest heart problems of humanity. And he just simply says this, if you want to get right with your people, and you want to get right with God, Proverbs 3, man. Proverbs 3, 34. That is why the scripture says God resists, opposes, mocks the proud. But he shows favor shows favor to the humble. Humility is not some sidecar virtue that 
You know, people say, oh, yeah, he was a real humble guy. Good for him. I'm not so humble, but don't really matter. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. It's not that. Humility is a pathway to the grace and the favor of God in your life. That if, if, if you humble yourself in the presence of the, God's mighty hand, he will in turn lift you up. It is the solution to the problem you've been asking God for. Let me give you the second place it's used quickly. My time is escaping us. 1 Peter chapter 5. Pardon me. My glasses have humble themselves in our presence. <laughs> you want honesty? You're like, I got it. I'm broke. First Peter 5. This is really interesting to me because it's, it's similar, but it's different. And Peter is talking about how humility at all levels is to be part of the very fabric, the, the DNA, the makeup of church life together. That without humility, this, this disintegrates quickly into politics and, and power struggles and, and you know, all, all the gross stuffs of church. And it begins with an exhortation to the leaders, the elders. I'll start at verse 1, 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Peter's like, hey, listen, I am exhorting you, leaders, elders, but think of any leadership. Elders, I too am in your position. And there's two things that are true of me that are also true of you. Number one, that we participate in Christ's sufferings. That if you're going to lead, you will experience Solidarity with Jesus in his sufferings. To lead is to suffer. To follow Christ is to suffer. But there's a, there's a mantle with leadership that says you will participate in the sufferings of Jesus. He says, but I also participate in the glory that's going to be revealed. And so Peter's like, listen, leaders, I'm exhorting you. You will suffer. There is hardship, but there is glory. I just find that so beautiful. If you desire to be a leader, embrace those two things. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus, capital S, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's my drop walking off the stage. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves. Now listen, all of you, if you're a leader, if you're not a leader, if you're older, if you're younger, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, 
and he, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I love the description is powerful. Leaders lead willingly with no expectation of gain and not domineering. The only payoff for a Christian leader is the unfading crown of the glory of Jesus, which should be enough. You shouldn't need expensive suits and nice new cars and jets and some of the things that many leaders surround themselves with. There's a humility that must be found in all expressions of Christian leadership. But there's a humility that must be found in all expressions of Christian followership as well. That those who are part of the church of God have to respect and honor and and subject themselves. Difficult word to say. To subject themselves, to humble themselves to humble leadership so that the whole fabric of the community of God reflects the beauty of Jesus. We tell our parents, our kids, even if your parents are wrong, you need to obey them because your obedience is right even if their leadership is wrong. That's not very popular in our day. I mean, a lot of people feel like it's their job to usurp or overthrow authority. Maybe when I was young, I felt the same. But there's something right and good about leaders humbly leading and those they they lead humbly following and supporting and being on board. That doesn't mean correcting leadership when they're wrong, but it does mean that the whole attitude and tone and fabric of the church survives on humility. Why is that? Because if we as a community function in love and humility together, it is our pathway to God elevating us with his favor. And I, for one, want to be a community where God's favor is poured out upon us so that all we do, God blesses. Amen? And pride and mockers and subverters, whether you're subverting leadership or others in the community, God opposes that. And as a community, he'll oppose us. And so we humble ourselves to one another. All of us, clothe yourself with humility. Isn't that powerful? I want to give you just a couple quick examples as we go. Humility in the life and favor of God. Humility is not helplessness. Humility acknowledges that you know that your help comes from God. And therefore, these heroes of faith that conquered kingdoms and administered justice, gained what was promised, these mighty figures of faith, they had to learn and find humility so that God could do a mighty thing. Because humility leads to victory. It's not the act of selling yourself short. We know that. It's the act of exalting God higher. So one way to approach humility is to ask yourself, how can I exalt God higher in my life? How can I exalt him so that his jealousy doesn't burn against me, so that I'm no longer fornicating and having adultery and and idolatry with the world? Humility. 
Humility is blessed by God because it demonstrates that you have tremendous faith that God will lift you up. Okay, let's look at um, a couple examples in the Old Testament. I want you to see this. Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet is one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Um, scholars and theologians call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel because God revealed to Isaiah the, the things he was going to do in Christ. We have these incredible prophetic chapters of Isaiah, of, of the suffering servant, and by his stripes we're healed, and, and he, 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 he took upon himself the sins of the people. He was afflicted by God so that we might be forgiven. It's unbelievable what God did through Isaiah. And listen to the call of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and his train filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim and the six wings, two wings to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, two to cover so they could keep flying. And they called to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to him with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. And with it, he touched Isaiah's mouth. And said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. The beautiful thing I love about Isaiah, this happens in Isaiah 6, by the way. It wasn't even the beginning of the book. That when the glory of the Lord is manifest with these seraphim, the wings, and, you know, the Lord exalted in majesty. Isaiah's response was, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. His response to the glory and the greatness of God was to humble himself. And when he humbled himself before the glory of God, God came and purified him with a burning coal from the altar. And only then, only then, did Isaiah offer himself to God and say, here I am, Lord, send me whatever you want me to do. There was this humbling process that had to happen in Isaiah in order for God to raise him up to be a mouthpiece of God. If Isaiah would have rushed in and said, yep, Lord, the world's a mess, your people are a mess, I'm your guy. And there was no humility before the Lord. God could never have raised him up. Let me give you another example of a young woman who God used very powerfully. Mary, a young woman submitted to God's will, the mother of Jesus. After Jesus was born, she sang a song. She wrote this poem. And it echoes Proverbs 3. It says this, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Speaking of God, God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, 
but has sent the rich away empty. I want to end with this last one in Philippians 2. Speaking of Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, and our example. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used as his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And today I want us just to see and I want you to begin to apply to your life and your heart this powerful principle that God opposes the proud, the mocker, but he gives grace and favor to the humble. And I ask you today, what ways do you need to humble yourself before the Lord? In what ways do you need to humble yourself before one another? Because God has plans and desires to lift you high. He wants your life to matter with maximum kingdom impact, with maximum joy of the Lord in your life, with maximum contentness, versatility. It doesn't matter. God doesn't have to manage and make things just right for you. He can take you, put you wherever he needs you, and you will be ready to go. Whether exalted or humbled, you know the powerful road to elevation in your life is humbling yourself. Stand with me. Worship team, come up. Let's sing one more song. While they're getting set up, I'm going to give you a chance to repent. Turn away from a mocking attitude or areas of pride in your life. I want to give you Holy Spirit that you would have a moment where you can spotlight in our lives the areas we need to repent and humble ourselves with covetousness and idolatry. God, with comparing ourselves to others, not being content with what you've given us. God, we know that you have plans for us. We know you desire to use us mightily in the kingdom, in this church, in one another's lives, and in the world that we live in. And so, Lord, we ask you to empower us. We ask you to do that, Lord, by lowering us. Help us, Lord, to have that heavenly revelation, that soul disposition, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but in humility to serve, to view others with honor. God, search our heart. See if there is any wicked way in us. Lord, Throw down the pride in our lives. I don't want it to have to happen through difficult circumstances. Lord, we offer you our hearts. We say now, Lord, have your way. But whatever it takes, oh God, I ask you to position us right in your eyes and right amongst one another. We pray that in the wonderful name of Jesus, our example. Amen.